Section 44 of Jean Christophe, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Jean Christophe, Volume 1, by Romain Roland, translated by Gilbert Canaan. Revolt 1, Part 8. It would have mattered little to Christophe's friends if their review had not also come in for blows in the battle. In truth, it served rather as an advertisement. There was no desire to commit the review to the quarrel. Rather, the attempt was made to cut Christophe off from it. There was astonishment that it should so compromise its good name, and they were given to understand that if they did not take care, steps would be taken, however unpleasant it might be, to make the whole editorial staff responsible. There were signs of attack, gentle enough, upon Adolf May and Mannheim, which stirred up the wasp's nest. Mannheim only laughed at it. He thought that it would infuriate his father, his uncles, cousins, and his innumerable family, who took upon themselves to watch everything he did and to be scandalized by it. But Adolf May took it very seriously, and blamed Christophe for compromising the review. Christophe sent him packing. The others, who had not been attacked, found it rather amusing that Mai, who was apt to pontificate over them, should be their scapegoat. Waldhaus was secretly delighted. He said that there was never a fight without a few heads being broken. Naturally, he took good care that it should not be his own. He thought he was sheltered from onslaught by the position of his family and his relatives, and he saw no harm in the Jews, his allies being mauled a little. Ehrenfeld and Goldenring, who were so far untouched, would not have been worried by attack. They could reply. But what did touch them on the raw was that Christophe should go on persistently putting them in the wrong with their friends, and especially their women friends. They had laughed loudly at the first articles and thought them good fun. They admired Christophe's vigorous window-smashing. They thought they had only to give the word to check his combativeness or at least to turn his attack from men and women whom they might mention. But no, Christophe would listen to nothing. He paid no heed to any remark and went on like a madman. If they let him go on, there would be no living in the place. Already their young women friends, furious and in tears, had come and made scenes at the offices of the review. They brought all their diplomacy to bear on Christophe to persuade him at least to moderate certain of his criticisms. Christophe changed nothing. They lost their tempers. Christophe lost his, but he changed nothing. Waldhaus was amused by the unhappiness of his friends, which in no wise touched him, and took Christophe's part to annoy them. Perhaps also he was more capable than they of appreciating Christophe's extravagance, who, with head down, hurled himself upon everything without keeping any line of retreat or preparing any refuge for the future. As for Mannheim, he was royally amused by the farce. It seemed to him a good joke to have introduced this madman among these correct people, and he rocked with laughter both at the blows which Christophe dealt and at those which he received, although under his sister's influence he was beginning to think that Christophe was decidedly a little cracked. He only liked him the more for it. It was necessary for him to find those who were in sympathy with him a little absurd, and so he joined Waldhaus in supporting Christophe against the others. As he was not wanting in practical sense, in spite of all his efforts to pretend to the contrary, 
he thought very justly that it would be to his friend's advantage to ally himself with the cause of the most advanced musical party in the country. As in most German towns, there was in the town a Wagnerverein, which represented new ideas against the conservative element. In truth, there was no great risk in defending Wagner when his fame was acknowledged everywhere and his works included in the repertory of every opera house in Germany and yet his victory was rather won by force than by universal accord, and at heart the majority were obstinately conservative, especially in the small towns such as this, which have been rather left outside the great modern movements and are rather proud of their ancient fame. More than anywhere else there reigned the distrust, so innate in the German people, of anything new, the sort of laziness in feeling anything true or powerful which has not been pondered and digested by several generations. It was apparent in the reluctance with which, if not the works of Wagner, which are beyond discussion, every new work inspired by the Wagnerian spirit was accepted, and so the Wagnerverein would have had a useful task to fulfill if they had set themselves to defend all the young and original forces in art. Sometimes they did so, and Bruckner, or Hugo Wolff, found in some of them their best allies. But too often the egoism of the master weighed upon his disciples, and just as Bayreuth serves only monstrously to glorify one man, the offshoots of Bayreuth were little churches in which mass was eternally sung in honor of the one God, at the most, the faithful disciples were admitted to the side chapels, the disciples who applied the hallowed doctrines to the letter and prostrate in the dust, adored the only divinity with his many faces, music, poetry, drama, and metaphysics. The Wagnerverein of the town was in exactly this case. However, they went through the form of activity. They were always trying to enroll young men of talent who looked as though they might be useful to it, and they had long had their eyes on Christophe. They had discreetly made advances to him, of which Christophe had not taken any notice, because he felt no need of being associated with anybody. He could not understand the necessity which drove his compatriots always to be banding themselves together in groups, being unable to do anything alone neither to sing, nor to walk, nor to drink. He was averse to all Vereinsfacen, but on the whole he was more kindly disposed to the Wagner Verein than to any other Verein. At least they did provide an excuse for fine concerts, and although he did not share all the Wagnerian ideas on art, he was much nearer them than to those of any other group in music. He could, he thought, find common ground with a party which was as unjust as himself towards Brahms and the Brahmins, so he let himself be put up for it. Mannheim introduced him. He knew everybody. Without being a musician, he was a member of the Wagnerverein. The managing committee had followed the campaign which Christophe was conducting in the review. His slaughter in the opposing camp had seemed to them to give signs of a strong grip which it would be as well to have in their service. Christophe had also let fly certain disrespectful remarks about the sacred fetish, but they had preferred to close their eyes to that, and perhaps his attacks, not yet very offensive, 
had not been without their influence, unconsciously, in making them so eager to enroll Christophe before he had time to deliver himself manfully. They came and very amiably asked his permission to play some of his compositions at one of the approaching concerts of the association. Christophe was flattered and accepted. He went to the Wagnerverein, and urged by Mannheim, he was made a member. At that time there were at the head of the Wagnerverein two men, of whom one enjoyed a certain notoriety as a writer, and the other as a conductor. Both had a Mohammedan belief in Wagner. The first, Josias Kling, had compiled a Wagner dictionary, Wagner lexicon, which made it possible in a moment to know the master's thoughts, De omni re shibili. It had been his life's work. He was capable of reciting whole chapters of it at table, as the French provincials used to troll the songs of the maid. He used also to publish in the Bayreuther Blatter articles on Wagner and the Aryan spirit. Of course, Wagner was to him the type of the pure Aryan, of whom the German race had remained the last inviolable refuge against the corrupting influences of Latin Semitism, especially the French. He declared that the impure French spirit was finally destroyed, though he did not desist from attacking it bitterly day by day as though the eternal enemy were still a menace. He would only acknowledge one great man in France, the Count of Gobineau. Kling was a little man, very little, and he used to blush like a girl. The other pillar of the Wagnerverein, Erich Lauber, had been manager of a chemical works until four years before. Then he had given up everything to become a conductor. He had succeeded by force of will, and because he was very rich. He was a Bayreuth fanatic. It was said that he had gone there on foot, from Munich, wearing pilgrim's sandals. It was a strange thing that a man who had read much, travelled much, practised diverse professions, and in everything displayed an energetic personality, should have become in music a sheep of panage. All his originality was expended in his being a little more stupid than the others. He was not sure enough of himself in music to trust to his own personal feelings, and so he slavishly followed the interpretations of Wagner given by the Kappelmeisters and the licensees of Bayreuth. He desired to reproduce even to the smallest detail the setting and the variegated costumes which delighted the puerile and barbarous taste of the little court of von Fried. He was like the fanatical admirer of Michelangelo, who used to reproduce in his copies even the cracks in the wall of the mouldy patches which had themselves been hallowed by their appearance in the hallowed pictures. Christophe was not likely to approve greatly of the two men, but they were men of the world, pleasant, and both well-read, and Lauber's conversation was always interesting on any other subject than music. He was a bit of a crank, and Christophe did not dislike cranks. They were a change from the horrible banality of reasonable people. He did not yet know that there is nothing more devastating than an irrational man, and that originality is even more rare among those who are called originals than among the rest. For these originals are simply maniacs whose thoughts are reduced to clockwork. Josias Kling and Lauber, 
being desirous of winning Christoph's support, were at first very keenly interested in him. Kling wrote a eulogistic article about him, and Lauber followed all his directions when he conducted his compositions at one of the concerts of the Society. Christoph was touched by it all. Unfortunately, all their attentions were spoiled by the stupidity of those who paid them. He had not the facility of pretending about people because they admired him. He was exacting. He demanded that no one should admire him for the opposite of what he was. And he was always prone to regard as enemies those who were his friends, by mistake. And so he was not at all pleased with Kling for seeing in him a disciple of Wagner and trying to see connections between passages of his leader and passages of the tetralogy, which had nothing in common but certain notes of the scale. And he had no pleasure in hearing one of his works sandwiched, together with a worthless imitation by a Wagnerian student, between two enormous blocks of Wagnerian drama. It was not long before he was stifled in the little chapel. It was just another conservatoire, as narrow as the old conservatoires, and more intolerant because it was the latest comer in art. Christophe began to lose his illusions about the absolute value of a form of art or of thought. Hitherto he had always believed that great ideas bear their own light within themselves. Now he saw that ideas may change, but that men remain the same, and, in fine, nothing counted but men ideas were what they were if they were born mediocre and servile even genius became mediocre in its passage through their souls and the shout of freedom of the hero breaking his bonds became the act of slavery of succeeding generations christophe could not refrain from expressing his feelings he let no opportunity slip of jeering at fetishism in art he declared that there was no need of idols or classics of any sort, and that he only had the right to call himself the heir of the spirit of Wagner, who was capable of trampling Wagner underfoot, and so walking on and keeping himself in close communion with life. Kling's stupidity made Christoph aggressive. He set out all the faults and absurdities he could see in Wagner. The Wagnerians at once credited him with the grotesque jealousy of their god, Christoph, for his part, had no doubt that these same people who exalted Wagner since he was dead would have been the first to strangle him in his life, and he did them an injustice. The Klings and the Laubers also had had their hour of illumination. They had been advanced twenty years ago, and then, like most people, they had stopped short at that. Man has so little force that he is out of breath after the first ascent. Very few are long-winded enough to go on. Christophe's attitude quickly alienated him from his new friends. Their sympathy was a bargain. He had to side with them if they were to side with him, and it was quite evident that Christophe would not yield an inch. He would not join them. They lost their enthusiasm for him. The eulogies which he refused to accord to the gods and demigods who were approved by the cult were withheld from him. They showed less eagerness to welcome his compositions, and some of the members began to protest against his name being too often on the programs. They laughed at him behind his back, and criticism went on. 
Kling and Lauber, by not protesting, seemed to take part in it. They would have avoided a breach with Christophe if possible. First, because the minds of the Germans of the Rhine like mixed solutions, solutions which are not solutions, and have the privilege of prolonging indefinitely an ambiguous situation. And secondly, because they hoped in spite of everything to be able to make use of him, by wearing him down, if not by persuasion. Christophe gave them no time for it. Whenever he thought he felt that at heart any man disliked him, but would not admit it and tried to cover it up so as to remain on good terms with him, he would never rest until he had succeeded in proving to him that he was his enemy. One evening at the Wagnerverein, when he had come up against a wall of hypocritical hostility, he could bear it no longer, and sent in his resignation to Lauber without wasting words. Lauber could not understand it, and Mannheim hastened to Christophe to try and pacify him. At his first words Christophe burst out, "'No, no, no, no! Don't talk to me about these people. I will not see them again. I cannot, I cannot. I am disgusted, horribly, with men. I can hardly bear to look at one.' Mannheim laughed heartily. He was thinking much less of smoothing Christophe down than of having the fun of it. "'I know that they are not beautiful,' he said. "'But that is nothing new. What new thing has happened?' "'Nothing. I have had enough, that is all. Yes, laugh, laugh at me. Everybody knows I am mad. Prudent people act in accordance with the laws of logic and reason and sanity. I am not like that. I am a man who acts only on his own impulse. When a certain quantity of electricity is accumulated in me, it has to expend itself at all costs.' and so much the worse for the others if it touches them, and so much the worse for them. I am not made for living in society. Henceforth I shall belong only to myself. "'You think you can do without everybody else?' said Mannheim. "'You cannot play your music all by yourself. You need singers, an orchestra, a conductor, an audience, a clack.' Christoph shouted, "'No! No! No!' But the last word made him jump. A clack! Are you not ashamed? I am not talking of a paid clack, although indeed it is the only means yet discovered of revealing the merit of a composition to the audience. But you must have a clack. The author's coterie is a clack. Properly drilled by him, every author has his clack. That is what friends are for. I don't want any friends. Then you will be hissed. I want to be hissed. Mannheim was in the seventh heaven. You won't even have that pleasure for long. They won't play you. So be it, then. Do you think I care about being a famous man? Yes, I was making for that with all my might. Nonsense. Folly. Idiocy. As if the satisfaction of the vulgarest sort of pride could compensate for all the sacrifices, weariness, suffering, infamy, insults, degradation, ignoble concessions, which are the price of fame— Devil take me if I ever bother my head about such things again. Never again. Publicity is a vulgar infamy. I will be a private citizen and live for myself and those whom I love. Good, said Mannheim ironically. You must choose a profession. Why shouldn't you make shoes? Ah, if I were a cobbler like the incomparable Saxe, cried Christophe, how happy my life would be, a cobbler all through the week and a musician on Sunday, privately, intimately, for my own pleasure and that of my friends. 
What a life that would be! Am I mad to waste my time and trouble for the magnificent pleasure of being a prey to the judgment of idiots? Is it not much better and finer to be loved and understood by a few honest men than to be heard, criticized, and toadied by thousands of fools? The devil of pride and thirst for fame shall never again take me. Trust me for that. Certainly, said Mannheim. He thought, in an hour he will say just the opposite. He remarked quietly, Then I am to go and smooth things down with the Wagnerverein? Christoph waved his arms. What is the good of my shouting myself hoarse with telling you no for the last hour? I tell you that I will never set foot inside it again. I loathe all these Wagnerverreine, all these Verreine, all these flocks of sheep who have to huddle together to be able to buy in unison. Go and tell those sheep from me that I am a wolf, that I have teeth, and am not made for the pasture. Good, good, I will tell them, said Mannheim as he went. He was delighted with his morning's entertainment. He thought, he is mad, mad, mad as a hatter. His sister, to whom he reported the interview, at once shrugged her shoulders and said, Mad? He would like us to think so. He is stupid and absurdly vain. Christoph went on with his fierce campaign in Volhaus's review. It was not that it gave him pleasure. Criticism disgusted him, and he was always wishing it at the bottom of the sea. But he stuck to it because people were trying to stop him. He did not wish to appear to have given in. Waldhaus was beginning to be uneasy. As long as he was out of reach, he had looked on at the affray with the calmness of an Olympian god. But for some weeks past, the other papers had seemed to be beginning to disregard his inviolability. They had begun to attack his vanity as a writer, with a rare malevolence in which, had Waldhaus been more subtle, he might have recognized the hand of a friend. As a matter of fact, the attacks were cunningly instigated by Ehrenfeld and Goldenring. They could see no other way of inducing him to stop Christoph's polemics. Their perception was justified. Waldhaus at once declared that Christoph was beginning to weary him, and he withdrew his support. All the staff of the review then tried hard to silence Christoph, but it were as easy to muzzle a dog who was about to devour his prey. Everything they said to him only excited him more. He called them poltroons, and declared that he would say everything, everything that he ought to say. If they wished to get rid of him, they were free to do so. The whole town would know that they were as cowardly as the rest but he would not go of his own accord. They looked at each other in consternation, bitterly blaming Mannheim for the trick he had played them in bringing such a madman among them. Mannheim laughed and tried hard to curb Christoph himself, and he vowed that with the next article Christoph would water his wine. They were incredulous, but the event proved that Mannheim had not boasted vainly. Christoph's next article though not a model of courtesy, did not contain a single offensive remark about anybody. Mannheim's method was very simple. They were all amazed at not having thought of it before. Christoph never read what he wrote in the review, and he hardly read the proofs of his articles, only very quickly and carelessly. Adolf May had more than once passed caustic remarks on the subject. He said that a printer's error was a disgrace to a review, 
and Christophe, who did not regard criticism altogether as an art, replied that those who were upbraided in it would understand well enough. Mannheim turned this to account. He said that Christophe was right, and that correcting proofs was printer's work, and he offered to take it over. Christophe was overwhelmed with gratitude, but they told him that such an arrangement would be of service to them and a saving of time for the review. So Christophe left his proofs to Mannheim and asked him to correct them carefully. Mannheim did. It was sport for him. At first he only ventured to tone down certain phrases and to delete here and there certain ungracious epithets. Emboldened by success, he went further with his experiments. He began to alter sentences and their meaning, and he was really skillful in it. The whole art of it consisted in preserving the general appearance of the sentence and its characteristic form, while making it say exactly the opposite of what Christophe had meant. Mannheim took far more trouble to disfigure Christophe's articles than he would have done to write them himself. Never had he worked so hard, but he enjoyed the result. Certain musicians, whom Christophe had hitherto pursued with his sarcasms, were astounded to see him grow gradually gentle and at last sing their praises. The staff of the review were delighted. Mannheim used to read aloud his lucubrations to them. They roared with laughter. Ehrenfeld and Goldenring would say to Mannheim occasionally, "'Be careful. You are going too far.' "'There's no danger,' Mannheim would say, and he would go on with it. Christoph never noticed anything. He used to go to the office of the review, leave his copy, and not bother about it any more. Sometimes he would take Mannheim aside and say, "'This time I really have done for the swine. Just read.' Mannheim would read. "'Well, what do you think of it?' "'Terrible, my dear fellow. There's nothing left of them.' "'What do you think they will say?' "'Oh, there will be a fine row.' But there never was a row. On the contrary, everybody beamed at Christophe. People whom he detested would bow to him in the street. One day he came to the office uneasy and scowling, and throwing a visiting card on the table, he asked, "'What does this mean?' It was the card of a musician whom he slaughtered. "'A thousand thanks!' Mannheim replied with a laugh. "'It is ironical.' Christophe was set at rest. "'Oh!' he said. I was afraid my article had pleased him. He is furious, said Ehrenfeld, but he does not wish to seem so. He is posing as the strong man and is just laughing. Laughing! Swine! said Christophe, furious once more. I shall write another article about him. He laughs best who laughs last. No, no, said Waldhaus anxiously. I don't think he is laughing at you. It is humility. He is a good Christian. He is holding out the other cheek to the smiter. "'So much the better,' said Christophe. "'Ah, coward! He has asked for it. He shall have his flogging.' Waldhaus tried to intervene, but the others laughed. "'Let him be,' said Mannheim. "'After all,' replied Waldhaus, suddenly reassured, "'a little more or less makes no matter.' Christophe went away. His colleagues rocked and roared with laughter. When they had had their fill of it, Waldhaus said to Mannheim, "'All the same. It was a narrow squeak. Please be careful. We shall be caught yet.' "'Bah!' said Mannheim. "'We have plenty of time. And besides, I am making friends for him.' 
End of section 44.